0: One time I was uh, in an interview to go pastor a church. Well, it was First Baptist Claremore. We're in that nick of the woods. And I remember we had about a a three-and-a-half-hour interview. And, man, it was in-depth. They looked in my underwear drawer because they had been through a series of pastors that had just kind of blown up in their face. And they weren't about to try to make another mistake. And I remember after all this interview, and I shared uh, about my life and my testimony and my theology and all of that stuff and my leadership. And so finally we go, the, the, the one guy leans over, and he ended up in Honduras. I ordained him as a missionary later, but he was a pharmacist at the Indian Hospital in Claremore. He kind of leaned across the table, and he said, well, would you just tell me, uh, tell us, Brother Kevin, what's your basic philosophy uh, of ministry? Uh, don't you like that word, philosophy? And you never know what they mean. Uh, So I just said, I looked at him, and I thought about this before that day, but this is it. You ready? I said, number one, be real. Number two, have fun. We'd say today, get real, Jill. (laughs) His name was Daryl, so I didn't call him Jill. But uh, I said, be real. I said, I got chapter and verse on that, Psalm 51, where David weeps his way back to God after committing adultery and murder to cover it up. You know the psalm. He's crying out for mercy, but he says, God, you desire truth in the inward parts. And let God be true, though every man is a liar. And we're all guilty of deceiving ourselves and deceiving others, and we can lie to ourselves about ourselves, but God knows the truth, so you need to be real. Amen? I like what the black preacher said, be who you is. If you is who you ain't, you ain't who you is. Amen? This wasn't even in my remarks. You triggered this, okay? I have a hair trigger, so sometimes it goes off. The other thing is have fun. I think we tend to take ourselves too seriously, and we don't take God seriously enough. One of the problems with our culture and our country today is people have stopped laughing at themselves, and they're so worried about being offended and being snowflakes and finding safe places, and it's just insane what is happening uh, with people. And the reason is because we've drifted from God. And people have grown up in fragmented families. They've grown up without the security of love from both a mom and dad who are together in it with them. And it, it, it's just been a very hard road for a lot of people. And they need the grace of God, but they don't know how to get it yet. They're looking. So we live in a great opportunity time to try to share the love, love of God with people. Amen? Amen. The other thing is have fun. David down in that psalm says, uh, Lord, let the bones that you have rejo- broken rejoice so we may go through some pain, we may go through some correction, kind of setting that stint and getting it right, and we may have to push through some pain for therapy, but when we come out on the other side, we're going to laugh, amen, amen. Well, my dear wife Sherry sends her love, uh, she's been friends uh, with the Stones a long time too, and w- as she would have been here, but we have a custom in our family, we just welcomed our ninth grandchild. You may applaud, yes, little boy named Landon. So he's got a four-year-old brother named Ryder. So they get home from the hospital after a couple of days, and, and Lannan is just kind of screaming his head off at one point. And he only does that when his mom changes him. He doesn't like the cold air to hit his skin, you know. He's always lived secure and in a warm environment. So he's screaming his head off, and, and, and Ryder goes, Well, Mom, what's wrong? She said, He'll be all right. Why, he just came straight to us from God. And Ryder says, Well, no wonder they sent him down here. Listen to the noise he makes. Laughter so anyway, amen, amen. Well, we were scheduled to have this with you last year, and as you know, we had an unusual year, interrupted by the COVID virus, by the, uh, all the shutdowns and all the things that have gone on, and all of that kind of looks through the prophetic prism. And so we can comment on that some this week, and we will. But I kind of want to set the stage this morning and kind of give you a big overview, and I hope it excites you. I hope you'll make time in your week to be here for every session if you're able to get your schedule clear to do that. I believe God has something to say, and I think he wants to bless us. I know he wants to work in your life. He wants to work in my life. He wants to work in this church. And by looking at the coming of Jesus, it is a great thing. And I want to say Mike did a really good job setting the table. Amen. You know, Keith leans over about 30 seconds in and goes, he's a youth pastor. I said, I'd already met him, but still, I knew when I met him. I said, by the energy of the guy bouncing around and the green crocs, I could spot him half a mile away, okay? We all know he's the youth pastor, all right? You did a good job, though. You really did. And we're going to kind of address some big-picture stuff with you as we go forward. I'm going to, this morning, try to take us to a passage that you wouldn't think of as prophecy necessarily, but you'll see as we unwrap it and pull back the veil that everything there is pointing at the culmination of history. Prophecy is a great and wonderful thing. It's not found in Hinduism. It's not in Islam. It's not in Buddhism. Confucius didn't know anything about it. The Bible really uniquely predicts the future. And I just read the other day in John's Gospel in the upper room at the Last Supper, Jesus has his friends near. It's close and it's intimate. And he says to them, What I say to you now you don't understand, but you will later. He also said to them, I tell you this before it happens so that when it does occur, you will believe. And that is one of the evidences of Christianity is the proof of fulfilled prophecy. You know when our Lord came the first time, he fulfilled over 300 specific prophecies. The year he would be crucified, really, if you do the math out of Daniel's vision. The place he would be crucified. Almost the week of the year when Passover falls. That his name would be Joshua or Yeshua or Jesus as we know him. That he would be born in Bethlehem. That as he died 700, 1,000 years before, it was predicted how he would die when the form of execution had never yet been developed. There was no crucifixion when David wrote Psalm 22. There was no crucifixion when Isaiah gives us Isaiah 53, or Zechariah writes about the one who is pierced. And yet, in elaborate detail, we're told that not a bone will be broken while he's on the cross, that he will pray, I thirst, and he did. That he will say, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he did. That he would say, my God, why have you forsaken me at his most intense hour of suffering? All of that was true and was literally fulfilled. And God said, I did this so that when it happens, you will know that I am real. Now, I just happened to read Revelation again this week because I was there for my, um, there it is. I was there for just my devotions and I went through Revelation again. And as I read the last two chapters, and I thought I really kind of hadn't noticed this before, God is giving John a vision of the final state of glory. And it's almost beyond description. It's, it's beyond imagination. It's incredible. And twice the Lord says, now what I say is true. It's almost like this is hard to believe. It's so amazing. But, folks, that's how it's going to be. Let me segue off something Mike said, <coughs> that ill-fated remark about the Cleveland Browns. We all had better hopes, right? Now Baker may be on injured list, right? So who knows what's going to happen? So you can hope for a a Super Bowl victory for them this year, but it may not be uh, in the cards, right? But let me tell you what biblical hope is. He hopes, but there's no guarantee. Biblical hope is a guaranteed thing. And I think of it, Christ's return is called the blessed hope. I think of it this way, Christmas and kids. How many of you remember Christmas? How many of you remember just the anticipation once we get past Thanksgiving, once we get into December, and all the activities and all the parties and all that stuff begins to happen, and what's going on, those kids, especially when the ones that are enjoying it at the little ages, they are on pins and needles. They can't wait. Their excitement is about to burst. And that morning, you as a parent, because I had seven children, you have been one of those unlucky Christmas Eve, Walmart shoppers at 11.59, And you bought a tricycle with 300 moving parts that you have to assemble because you waited so long to shop and the built ones were gone. And you finally tuck it in and pull the shade down and it's about 4.30 a.m. And here comes the pitter-patter of little feet in 20 minutes to find the tricycle. Can you imagine the anticipation and the excitement? Now, see, every one of us, we look forward to Christmas. The older you get, amen? Amen. We go through these phases in life. You know, first of all, we, we believe in Santa Claus. And, and when we're a little older, we might find out more about Santa Claus. And then when we become a dad and we've got a family, um, we are Santa Claus. And then when we become a grandpa like me, we look like Santa Claus. So, I mean, this thing just goes downhill the whole way. We're sledding the entire way. But that's what is going on, and the anticipation never leaves. My wife gets ready. We pull the tree out. We start to get ready right after Thanksgiving. One year we didn't take it down until the first week of January, but I was in good company because I've been to Ukraine and ministered over there, and they celebrate Christmas on the 7th of January. That's where the 12 days of Christmas comes from. You count from December 25 to January 7th. So I said, Sherry, you're okay, but this tree's got to come down on the 8th. So there we are. But the anticipation, the enjoyment, that's how we're supposed to live. And do you know this last year, one of the verses almost every day that I have claimed and prayed for my life and my family during this unusual season of COVID and all the uncertainty because my son and I started a business just before it got started. And, you know, we were on sketchy ground where we have a phone repair. Uh, cell phone repair, and he runs it out of a mall there in Oklahoma City, and and we were on the verge of opening a second store, and everything just shut down, and we're just kind of like, what are we going to do? And the verse that I just claim every day is in Romans 5, 5, hope does not disappoint because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Now, don't miss this. This is a now verse. This isn't out there like prophecy. This is right now if you have your hope fixed on the Lord Jesus' return, and you know Christmas is coming, let's say it this way, it's not Christmas, Christ is coming. I'm not saying it's December 25th, but if you know Christ is coming, you can live in the present anticipation and enjoyment of it. And that's how we're supposed to live. And as we relax and sit back, then we begin to, under, uh, to discover That the love of God is poured out in us, and we can be a vessel of ministry to other people. And that's what we've been trying to do these last months. And God has been faithful, and I'll just say that. And we're going to get to a Bible passage in a minute this morning. Here's what I'd like to kind of do with you this week, if God allows. I'd like to talk to you really more starting tonight about the signs of His coming. And I'll just kind of whet your appetite if I can. The 20th century saw two world wars. Some people say we're on the verge of World War III right now with China. Could be. I don't know. But the 20th century saw something that had never happened. Nations all over the world got in coalitions, and we had a global conflict And that fulfills the words of Matthew 24 about nation rising against nation and kingdom against kingdom because the the Hebrewism that Jesus is alluding to refers to those kinds of coalitions. Well, that happened. So there's two world wars. And do you know that after Hiroshima and the atomic bomb and all the dust settled and the radiation kind of dissipated, when all was said and done after two world wars, guess what? What changed in the world? Come and find out tonight. We're going to talk about the grandest sign of all. Then we're going to talk about the growing signs that Jesus compared to birth pangs. And then if we can, we'll talk briefly about the gripping signs that Jesus said would cause men's hearts to fail for fear. Anxiety and panic attacks for fear. This last week, and I'm just kind of teasing you for tonight. This last week, Facebook is going to change their name, rebrand, but their whole new mission is really about the metaverse the metaverse to replace the internet. If you don't know what the metaverse is, we're gonna talk about it a few minutes tonight. Google did not start to be a search engine. There were a lot of search engines when the internet was young. Google rose to primacy because their driving mission statement is to be the first to achieve artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is one of the most terrifying things And we're going to talk about things that cause our hearts to be gripped by fear. We'll do that tonight. After looking at the signs, Monday through Wednesday, God willing, we'll talk about the sequence of some of the events that are really on that end time capsule as it marches through. Kind of the the template that God gave. And we'll see how that is really going to come to pass and so I want to urge you to be here and not to miss a thing, because I think God really has something He wants to say. Now, this morning, what I'd like to do is, like I said, kind of set the stage. Got a good setup from Pastor Mike, and we're going to go forward with that. But let me just give you some general Kind of schematic truths about prophecy. Some of you are probably prophecy students. Some of you, and I think you can get out of balance on anything, okay? I've been a pastor for 40 years, and and part of the job of keeping God's work where it needs to be is to keep things in balance, amen? And people can get out of balance and go to extremes. And I've seen people go to extremes in prophecy. In my own life, I have. I've experienced it, seeing it happen to people that I knew and loved. So from 2014 to 2018, I got to host a a show called Prophecy in the News. It was a weekly television broadcast, and we did a few short updates in the week of current events as they related to prophecy. And then we'd have a 30-minute show every week that was uh, literally broadcast around the world to the English-speaking areas like Australia and UK, New Zealand, Canada, places like that. But I had the privilege to meet and interview some of the top prophecy scholars of our day and talk with them about the books and the research that they were doing and we got to host three or four uh, national conferences and we even had international because we had people coming from overseas to be at those but I know prophecy and I know the culture and I know the crowd and you can go to seed on anything you can go out of balance so it's very important to be scriptural and down the line okay so I just want to give you some general truths about prophecy, and then we're going to look at a classic, beautiful illustration uh, of, of really this morning of the whole return of our Lord Jesus, all right? So let me just say this, number one, Jesus is, this is number one, Jesus is coming back. Amen? Do you believe that? History demands it. Justice demands it. Everything is heading toward it. <coughs> The Bible promises it in the New Testament, prophesies it in the Old Testament. Two-thirds of our Bible alludes to the second coming of Christ. There's more about him coming the second time than there is about him coming the first time. That's why the Jewish nation missed him. They were looking for coming number two, thinking it was the only one when he's coming back as a conquering king. And they overlooked him as a suffering servant. So, yes, Jesus is coming back. Live for it. Look up. Lift up your heads. Your redemption is drawing nigh. Amen. But I want to say just as quickly, there's no possible way Jesus is coming back every single Friday night. And I followed all these trends. Amen? I mean, I could take you back. I could talk about when I was pastoring my first church. Some of you may be old enough to remember there was a book that came out. I was in Muskogee, Oklahoma. And some old boy in Arkansas, whose name I forget, sent out a book all over the nation called 88 Reasons... Why Jesus is coming in 1988. And they were good reasons. I mean, the guy was, was pretty biblical in a lot of stuff. He missed one main feature. Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour. And you've got to watch when you see a date setter. Don't debunk and give up the whole idea of prophecy. You just saw another sign that it's going to happen. Because there are going to be people who try to deceive, who rise up and say, He's here, He's there, He's in the desert. Jesus said that in Matthew 24. So you've actually seen another confirmation when somebody gets it wrong. So 88 reasons. But but it did some good. I saw some people in my church that were backslid. I mean, past the back row. They were almost out the door. And boy, they were getting worried. They were coming, Pastor, is this true? Could this be? And, you know, I'm not going to miss a good opportunity. And I said, well, we don't know. And that's the truth. We don't know. I said, rather that book is right or it came in your mailbox, you should be living right anyway. Because he could come at any time. Before I finish this sentence, the sky could open and Jesus could call his people home. So we ought to live like we want to believe that, right? Martin Luther said, live like Jesus died yesterday, rose this morning, and is coming again tonight. And that's how a believer needs to live, looking up for our blessed hope and the appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he's not coming every Friday. couple of illustrations. This is October 24th. It was October 22nd in 1844. That's been a while. All right. The, the people in the United States, a date had been set, and Christ was said that he would return October 22nd. Now, that sounds like ancient history to us, but it wasn't that long ago in the grand scheme. And all across America since about 1832, there had been this move of God called the Second Great Awakening. If you've never heard of that, it followed the First Great Awakening, all right? Pretty clever of them, huh? Anyway, Second Great Awakening, great work of God, great move of God. New York, Boston, all of New England, great turns to Christ. God used an evangelist named Charles Finney who had been a legal mind, and he came to Christ convinced of the reality when he confronted and examined the truth for Jesus' resurrection. Finney began to preach, and when he would go, he sent two men ahead of him, and they would rent a little basement or cellar room and just saturate a town in prayer for a month, and Finney would arrive. Now, Billy Graham, who was an evangelist just of this last era, when he he lamented his ministry, he said, the one regret I have is he said, we'll go through a city, we'll hold a crusade, and when we come back in a year, Only 10% of the people are actually in a church. Finney would go and preach and there would be such heartfelt conversions that you could come back in five years or ten years and only 10% of the people who made decisions would be out of church. Bars closed. Police departments sat around and took up knitting because there was no crime and nothing to do. Jails were empty. I mean, it was a real reformation of society because faith made a difference in people's lives. And as all of this is going on and great things are happening in America, God is really getting America ready for the second, for the civil war is what he's doing. That's what he was really doing. But some people got the notion that Christ would return. And when he didn't show up, many of them walked away and said, well, that was the great disappointment. The Jehovah's Witness began with a and they got way off on a lot of truth. They're off. Don't welcome them into your home. The Bible says that. I go out on the porch and talk to them. They say, well, we're, I said, who are you? And they said, well, we're Jehovah's witnesses. And I said, well, so am I. Some of you get that. I said, I've been witnessing for Jehovah ever since I got saved. And they said, well, we must not be the same kind. I said, I'm the saved kind. What kind are you? I told them Jesus was Jehovah. and scared them so bad they dropped their watchtower and ran off. You know? But they started as a, as, as a group looking for the second coming. And they had a prediction. It'd be 1912, 1914, 1918. And finally, when, you know, I'd missed it three times, they said, well, he came in 1918, but it was invisible and nobody saw it. By the way, the year after 88 Reasons, 1988, he came out with a follow-up book last year, the next year, 1989, 89 Reasons. <laughs> it didn't do quite as well as the first one. More recently, in 2012... People said the Mayan calendar, you know, runs out. There's this big stone down in South America, Brother Keith, and it had this Mayan calendar on it, and it ended at December 21st, 2021. If you write it out with numbers, it was 1221, excuse me, it was 121221. And are they, (laughs) nope, it was 122112, for those that care. But it was like computer code. It was just a few letters there, and they were going, why, there are people, so he's going to come back. And this wasn't people in the church, this was the world. A lot of people, wow, the Mayans are really on to something. People are so foolish to believe stuff. They won't believe the Bible, but they'll believe something like that. Jesus said to the Jews, I come in my own name, and you see my works, and I tell you who sent me, and you won't believe. If another comes in his own name, him you will believe. Absolutely crazy. So I could give you illustration after illustration. More recently in uh, 2011, Harold Camping promised that Christ would come in May of 18th of 2011, and he had a huge radio following in America. People sold their houses. People sold their possessions. They got in vans and drove to California where Harold was. And This was just 10 years ago. And, man, there was such a frenzy. And then nothing. And then he reset the date. And then he reset it a third time. Just got my calculation a little wrong. He finally, and he's gone on to glory now, I hope he knew the Lord. I think he did. But he admitted that what he did was wrong and sinful. Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour. And we've always, we had the blood moons in 2015. And then in 2016, we had the Shemitah, which is the Jewish reset, which is due again in another couple of years But all of there's always things, but, but now let's back off a minute and say, well, what's going on here? Here's what's going on. People of any generation that really love the Lord and really are reading prophecy are trying to connect the dots. That's not always bad. You can't just say, this is the date and we're sure. Some people have stepped back and said, well, they said Hitler was the Antichrist. They said Stalin was the Antichrist. Some said Ronald Reagan was the Antichrist. Some said it was a... It it was Gorbachev that was the antichrist. That was, there's nothing to that. Let me just tell you this. The devil doesn't know when Jesus is going to come back. He's got to have a leader candidate in every generation. And every generation with its eyes wide open can find somebody that could be the possible candidate. But when we start saying dogmatically, it's this person or that person, we better be careful. So we're going to begin looking at some details of these things in the coming nights, and I I hope you'll be here for that. Let me say one other thing about it. Prophecy is, I say it this way, in hindsight, it's 2020. You see it. Jesus said, after these things happen, you'll understand. You see it clearly, and it validates. Boy, God was right all along. He said that, and it happened. He promised that, and he did it. When you're looking at it out there, it's kind of 50-50, because you don't know for sure. You're guessing. You're trying to connect the dots with the wisdom God may give you. And there's a lot of good leads and a lot of stuff to excite us, and I hope you'll get excited, but not to a point where you just become obsessive and let it dominate your entire thinking, and you should be doing what Jesus said. When Jesus rose to heaven, two angels said the disciples were kind of like this, you know, Everybody's walking along the street going, What are those guys looking at? You know, two angels, you men of Galilee, why stand ye here staring up into the heavens? This same Jesus who left will return in like manner. He left physically, he's coming back physically. He left in a cloud. He's going to return in a cloud. He left accompanied by angels. He's going to return accompanied by angels. He left the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14. He's going to return to the Mount of Olives. It's all going to happen just as prophesied. But they said to him, why stand gazing? And Jesus had told them, your job now is to go into all the world and make disciples. You'll receive power and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So that's where our concern needs to be, to be sharing what Christ has done in our life, telling your story, pointing people to the truth of God's Word so that they can find Him and be ready. Because when He does come, there will be people left behind. I want to take you right now to Matthew 17. And uh, we're going to look briefly... And you've got to realize, bear with me this week, I'm actually giving you about 10 different studies, and I have five sessions, okay? So I'm just trying to to, to give you more than you probably can digest and not take all your time with it, but I'd rather you leave wanting more than you be going, when is this guy going to wind down, all right? Amen. Amen. Did you ever hear somebody cram a 10-minute sermon into 30 minutes? It's not a pretty sight, all right? So we're going to go to Matthew 17. I dare say you're familiar with this passage. I dare say you've read it, but we're going to actually maybe see it with a, maybe some new eyes today, and that'll be a good thing. By the way, let me just say this: when you read the Bible, this is so important. God's word has one interpretation. The Bible says in Second Peter that no prophecy of Scripture is of private interpretation. There is only one right interpretation of the doctrines and the truth of the Word of God. But there are different applications of that truth. Here's what I mean. Let me give you a real clear example. I'm told to honor my father. Okay, when I was five, that meant no back talk and make my bed and do what he said. Amen? When I was 14, that meant that I do good in school and and kind of follow his advice and, and honor his name when I acted out in public when I was seen, that I honor the family name. When I was 21 and left home, it meant that I carried that name and that memory and that I still honored him on his birthdays and called him weekly and maintained my relationship with him. When I became a man and had children, I honored him as my father so that my children could see that. When my dad went into his later life and got Alzheimer's, I honored him in a very different way, but it was important that he know that we loved him and that we were there with him, and that's how I showed honor. And today, Dad's in heaven and has been for 20 years, but I honor him as I remember him even this moment, and as I go and, and bring flowers or, or memorials to his graveside, and as we cherish him at, at our family gatherings, I still honor my father. That never changed, but the way it expressed and applied changed. Here's what I want to say about God's Word to you. God's Word has a plain meaning. Everybody should get it. It's clear. It means what it says. It says what it means. But God's Word also has a practical meaning, and that's what I just illustrated. At different seasons and times in your life, what the Bible directs you will will apply, just like I showed with my dad. There'll There'll be a practical meaning for the hour you read it. Then sometimes there's a personal meaning. I mean, God will just speak to you out of a scripture, and you can go to the history and the context and get lost in all that, but that scripture just grabs your heart, and the Spirit is saying, this is a promise I'm making you, and that's a personal. And then there's usually, in many passages, there's a prophetic meaning, and it's really pretty plain once you look, when you're looking for it. It's not hidden, but there's a prophetic meaning to many things in scripture, and when you read the Old Testament especially, you'll go, where have I seen this before? And so much of it is a type or a picture of Jesus when he comes. Well, we're going to read Matthew 17, eight verses to him. put the scriptures up there, that da there we go. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and behind door number three, one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright light, or cloud, excuse me, overshadowed them. Suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. What's interesting about that, and we've heard it all our lives and we believe it. Uh, We've probably looked at it from this angle. Jesus is transfigured. I mean, there's a moment where he goes up on the mountain to pray and it's as if God rips the veil of his flesh just for a minute and his incarnate glory shines out, his pre-incarnate glory. And it's brighter than the sun. And it, it happens while he's praying in communion with his Father. And it's as if it's validating what they had just said in chapter 16 because this was only six days after that. Jesus said, who do you say I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he said, you're right, Peter. And so this really, boy, if Peter had any second thoughts about what he'd said, here it is, man. He is glowing like the Lord's glory. What an amazing moment that was. And then we see Moses and Elijah by him. And, of course, we were taught in Sunday school, and you probably were too, That and this is right, that that represents Moses the law and Elijah the first of the prophets. And so the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, point to Jesus. All of that is correct, and you are absolutely right. And you can stop there and be happy with that story because it's true. But if you look again, you notice something else. You notice that right before this, Right after he said, I, Peter said, you are the Christ, he said to those guys, he said, I tell you this, some of you standing here will see the kingdom of God before you die. And I used to read that and go, well, what was that talking about? I mean, really, because we, we say now, and it's right, the kingdom is inside us, it's spiritual, it's really not visible but in the Bible, the whole idea of the kingdom in the end is it really comes. You remember pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the king comes, and the kingdom's coming with him. So when Jesus says to some of you standing here, what does he mean? And, 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 and Matthew didn't stop, get a new scroll, and write chapter 17. He just kept writing. After these things, six days later, some of you, Jesus took Peter, James, and John. And they went up on the mountain. Now, they are at the highest mountain in Israel. It's not the Mount of Olives, which is outside Jerusalem, where he ascended from and where he'll return. But they went to the highest mountain at the edge of Israel on the north near Lebanon. Mount Hermon, it's called now. And it's always snow peaked any month of the year because it's the highest altitude in all of Israel. And Jesus is up there, and I mean, he's in the snow. And can you imagine, have you ever seen the bright sun on a snowy day? Man, it's almost blinding. That's what this was probably like. And even his clothes were glistening. And they see it's as if they see his glory. And then they look and there's Moses and then there's Elijah. And you begin to say, well, what is this all about? What is this telling us? Peter wants to build three tabernacles or tents, one for each of them. And God stops it and says, time out. This is my son. Listen to him. In other words, Peter, don't you dare bring my son down to the level of Moses and Elijah. He's holy God. He's the son of of God. He's the second person of the Trinity, the eternal word who created all things. And he who will rise from the dead and conquer Satan and death and hell and will rule over this universe forever and ever and ever. He's not just another prophet. He's not just another religious leader. He's the son of God. So the Lord said, listen to him. Got that. (laughs) Lesson learned. The other thing is, listen to him. What's the last thing he really talked about six days ago? After they identified who he was, he told them about the cross. And if you read your Gospels carefully, it was the very first time he ever told them about the cross. He hadn't mentioned it until they were alone on that retreat. And he said, guys, uh, who do you think I am? And when they said, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the Old Testament fulfilling prophecy, he said, I'm going to go die on the cross. They're going to betray me, beat me, abuse me, and kill me. Three days later, I'll rise again. And it's as if the Lord on that mountain said, listen to him, especially when he talks about the cross and the resurrection. We sang it in a song this morning, glory and suffering go together. And we see Jesus here. And when he comes back, he's going to come back like transfiguration. He's not going to come back in sandals and a white robe, weighing all of 130 pounds dripping wet looking like his best friend died like he often does in these movies. Return with his face shining like the sun. He's going to return to crush and trample Satan underfoot. He's going to return to rule the nations with a rod of iron. He is returning as the King of kings and as the Lord of lords. So Jesus represents and stands alone as our Redeemer. But I want to look at Moses and then Elijah just quickly. Moses stands in for us at this occasion as the resurrected believers. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, the Bible says when Jesus does return the second time, guess what's going to happen? There's going to be suddenly the shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up, that's that word rapture, to meet them in the air, and together we'll all be with the Lord. I don't know the day or hour. We get in trouble setting the date and circling it on our calendar, but when he comes, there'll be a shout, there'll be the voice of the archangel, the trump of God will blow, and that graves are going to open up all over the world. Those that believe and know him are going to come out of those graves alive, and their spirit returns into that body, and they're animated and rise up, and then we that are in that generation. If we're still living, we're going to overcome gravity and just ascend with them, and our body will be transformed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, and there we will be together with the Lord. Okay, well, how did Moses die? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. There's a little shroud of mystery around it. He goes up on the mountain because God says it's your time. This is in uh, Deuteronomy 32 and 3 and 4. He goes up on the mountain, and he dies, and the Bible says that, that God buried him. The Jews weren't allowed to go up there. You know, if they had, they would have buried him. And where had they just come from? Egypt. What did they do there with dead bodies? Embalmed them. They would have embalmed Moses' body, and they might have ended up trying to worship him. Did you know until the Iron Curtain fell in the Soviet Union in 1989 and a few years after, Joseph Stalin, or Lenin, was embalmed there in in Moscow at Red Square, and people had to go by for hours looking at his body and paying homage And there might have been that that need or that, that, that temptation for the Jewish nation to turn away from the living God and worship their human leader. You say, people wouldn't do that. Oh, yes, they will. I've seen people get all carried up following a man or a ministry or a pastor and walk away from their faith in God when he fails. So God buried Moses. And Jude tells us that the devil came and disputed about the body, tried to get it. And the archangel Michael said, the Lord rebuke you. And the devil got out of there. So Moses does get to go to the promised land 1,500 years later than he thought. And he's standing there on Mount Hermon. And there he is. Now, I don't know if he doesn't have his final resurrected body because he'll be a part of the general resurrection with all of us. But God gave him some kind of temporary uh, body for that occasion and for that day. And there he was. And he represents the resurrected believers. If you know Christ and you go out of this world, it ain't over. Your spirit is with God, and your body will be raised incorruptible, and your spirit will reunite in that body, and I'll speculate on this maybe one night this week. We don't know. We're speculating, but we will be fit. We will be healthy. We will be our best, and we may be in the prime of life. Jesus was 33 when he was resurrected, so we may be about that stage, and all the teenagers said, ooh, that's old, but anyway Let's look at Elijah just a moment. Elijah, what does he do? He represents the raptured believers. How did Elijah depart this world? He was caught up in a chariot of fire. God said, go cross the Jordan River. You're coming home. And so Elijah goes, and Elisha follows him and won't be shaken off. And Elijah goes, and then finally he's caught up in a whirlwind, a chariot of fire, chariot of horses. And he literally in his body ascends into heaven, just like that last generation will. And probably on the way up, that body is transformed and he stands in the courts of God in heaven and he returns at the transfiguration moment. Let's get the picture. Here's Jesus coming in full glory. Here's a resurrected saint of God. Here's a raptured, caught up alive saint of God. There's clouds. There's the sound of a shout or a voice. And it is the whole setting of the kingdom of God when he comes back. It's there. It's going to literally happen. And all the king's horses and all the king's men that are trying to figure out all our political problems today, listen to me. They're not going to get it right. It's not going to work until Jesus comes. Amen? Let me just tell you something, and I'll close with this. I know lunch is back there, and I've learned enough about Baptist. Let me just tell you this, Psalm 1, first three words are four, blessed is the man. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? Psalm 1 is about individuals, Psalm 2 is about the nations. Let me tell you what a problem we have in our nation today and in our Christianity in America. We've gotten away from Psalm 2. We've made it all about me and Jesus, my individual personal Christianity. A lot of the preaching that you hear today in Protestant pulpits is what somebody rightly call therapeutic preaching. Oh, you poor dear. I know it's hard. I know you're stressed. I know your gym closed during the lockdown. I know you've got three car payments because you're so covetous. Well, they don't say it that way. It's our preaching. It's what it's it's toned down to. I want to tell you what I hope doesn't happen if you're a Christian and that's what you need 100% of the time. I agree there's a place for some of that. We need to be strengthened in the faith. So don't get me wrong. But I hope at the judgment seat of Christ, I'm not standing by the guy in Afghanistan who got arrested last week and they tortured and beat before they killed his wife and children in front of his eyes and then killed because he had a Bible app on his phone. You want to stand by that guy and explain your Christian faithfulness and service? Americans are so spoiled and such crybabies. And prophecy needs to strengthen us because it was given to the church to take them through years of suffering. Now, I hope I'm wrong. I'd like to be wrong on this. I think we're going to see the temperature continue to rise on Christianity in America. We are now the enemy. White evangelicals, in particular, are described as terrorists. And they're going to try to outlaw a lot of the biblical speech and truth and stop us from sharing our faith places and even come after churches and ministries financially to wreck them. I believe that will happen. One of the things COVID did was it shook out a lot of the people that are just kind of hanging on the edge. My friend, it's time to climb in the boat and buckle your seatbelt and be in for the long row. This is a time to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you find Psalm 1 and praise God, it's there and we need it. And that's probably, if you're still drinking a lot of that milk, it's because you haven't advanced far in your faith, maybe. But if you're still needing that after a lifetime of Christianity, I couldn't believe Christians that are scared to die of COVID. And I I hope I'm not hitting you with a two by four. I don't mean to be stupid. I don't mean don't take precautions. I don't mean anything like that. But if you really believe the Bible and you really believe Jesus' promise, if you die, guess what? It's only gonna get better. What are you worried about? And the Bible says Psalm 3115, my times are in your hand. Job 10, 12, our life is in his hand. So I don't tempt fate. I don't do stupid stuff. I don't walk into a radiation-filled zone without a you know met suit, ha- hazmat suit on. I wouldn't do that. Got three of them hanging in my closet. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't get near radiation if I can help it, all right? But I, I'm just saying, I don't tempt fate, but you can't live your life in fear. When you become afraid, you become enslaved. And I want to tell you, if you're a Christian, the only power the devil has over a believer is the power of a lie he can get you to believe. You stand on the truth. You know what you know, you know why you know it, and you know who you know. And you'll be fine. So let's move from Psalm 1 to Psalm 2 and begin to discover that the nations and the kings of this earth are taking counsel together. They're actually conspiring. That's what that word means. Against the Lord and his Christ. And God doesn't wring his hands and worry, Psalm 2. He laughs. And he says, do as you will. I will install my king, Jesus, on my holy hill, Jerusalem. Jesus is coming back. You can be sure of it. And we need to be ready and expectant. And I pray you are. I pray in your heart that you've made peace with God, that you've accepted Christ not in a formal, just outward way, but in an inner reality of your heart. And if you haven't, I hope you'll do it before we walk out of this room right now. And I pray that you'll be burdened enough to realize our family, our friends, our neighbors who don't know him, Part of the book is about the end for the damned, and that's a Bible word, damned. They are doomed and lost and separated from God forever. And you talk about being broken, they're broken for good. People that don't know him, that's where they're going to be. So let's be on our mission, amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time today, and we pray that you would energize in us by your spirit, just a work and a conviction in our heart that would excite us and ignite us that we'd be on fire (laughs) with your truth and your spirit. I pray, Lord, that this church could just, Lord, sense a new horizon as they begin to realize again the great blessing and the hope. And thank you that pastor is teaching through Revelation uh, on the midweek service. And I pray you'd continue to just fuel the flames in our heart, Lord, that we would be looking up and expecting but also with another eye on this lost world that we'll be sharing and giving and loving those who need to know you. Thank you, Lord. Just a moment with our heads bowed. If you're here today and in your heart there's any uncertainty at all about your relationship with the Lord, I just want to say God doesn't want you to have that uncertainty. God wants you to have an assurance. God wants you to know that when your last heartbeat happens, you're going to come into his presence. Why do I know that? Because he said so. He said, I've written these things in the Bible that you may know that you have eternal life. And God wants you to have it and know it. If you're not clear about that, I don't want you to to just say, well, I'll figure that out later. You may not have later. Just surrender to the Lord this morning. Open your heart right now and say, dear Jesus, I'm giving all of myself to you. I want to follow you. I want to know you. I don't want to just be a halfway follower. I want to mean it with all I am. So, Lord, forgive my sin and receive me today. I thank you. And if if that's your prayer, I'm going to give you an opportunity to just make a confession of it in a minute by sharing what the Lord did in your life. So, someone else may be here this morning, and, you know, you are a believer, you love the Lord, but you've grown a little cold. He says we leave our first love. He says some love grows cold, and that's through unbelief and sin. And maybe today you just need to come back to the fire. And warm up and and you've been a distance from the Lord and he's wanting you to walk close to him and you need to return today and say Lord I'm sorry I strayed I I got far off and Lord I want to come home with with all my being to walk with you every day that's an important decision as well that's an important moment in your life as you find and walk with Christ in all his fullness And someone may be here today, and you want to be a part of this church family. You know, God's brought you here, and you've met people, and you feel this is where you need to belong. For any of these reasons, what we're going to do is stand and sing a hymn of invitation. This is your invitation from the church and from the Lord to let God have his way in your life. And I just ask you Uh, to just quietly, uh, as we stand and begin to sing, just slip out into an aisle and come meet Pastor here at the front and, and tell him why the Lord's bringing you today and what's on your heart. And we'll rejoice with you, and this church will love you and help you every way they know how. Let's stand to our feet.